You're listening to a Southern Star Media Production. To be a fisherman, you have to be very resilient. You have to be a person that doesn't get knocked down easily and won't get up. And that's the truth. But they go up to sea in storms, gales. They're out there now in in, in Storm Island. I guarantee you there's fishermen out there trying, trying to make a living, bring in food. So they'll keep going until they're actually knocked out. Hello and welcome to the Southern Stars Coronavirus Podcast. I'm the news editor Siobhan Cronin and this week's interview is with Skibbereen man Patrick Murphy, the outspoken chief executive of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation. This is a very challenging time for the industry dealing with Covid, Brexit coming down the tracks and general fears for the industry. I spoke to Patrick earlier to hear his take on these issues and why he believes a no-deal Brexit could mean game over for the industry that accounts for 84% of Barra's economy, with similar figures in other coastal areas of West Cork. So welcome, um, Patrick. You're the Chief Executive Officer at the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation, and we'll talk about that shortly. But first of all, tell me a little bit about growing up. I believe you're from Skibbereen. So how did you go from living in Skibbereen, uh, which doesn't have a very big fishing industry, to being one of the main spokespersons for the industry in Ireland? As you said at the start, this is uh, not long enough to go into all the major details, but very simply, um, my father comes from Hare Island, so we have a house still inside in Hare Island, and I was inside in a boat, I'd say, before I I ever got to six months, so I was underwater from then. I fished with my father, hand-hauling pots over the side of a punt from the age of eight, and my summers, um, we had a farm in Derry Croon, so we did that as well too, and uh, I went into the industry and I have a passion for it like nobody could ever describe. Um, I'm fishing since I was, as I said, eight. I professionally fishing from 18 when I left secondary school and we moved into aquaculture. But um, it's in the blood. Um, my granduncles come back from America and they'd be telling me the stories of my uncles and them going lobster pot fishing um, all around the coast. And they used to sleep on board boats that, wouldn't be twice the length of a, of a six foot bed now and a little stove up the front that they and they keep the pots on board so all the stories it's I, I, I'm reared with it but um yeah so I went into the fishing industry um health reasons took me out of the fishing industry and a friend contacted me about the advertisement for the or something west and um to be honest with you I didn't think I'd get the job but I applied anyway because you know um bit of a stubborn streak in me just when somebody says you can't do something I said well we'll have a go and uh, they liked the cut of my jib as they say and they gave me the job I'm there four years now and um, they still like me I'm still there but there's an awful lot of learning an awful lot of learning I, I'm going to tell you one quick story now to emphasize this I was inside in the job Javon for six months that was my trial period and at the end of the six months I said to my chairman John D. O'Sullivan I know am I cut out for this? And he says, what do you mean? I said, Gee, John, there's an awful lot of stuff I, I haven't learned in the six months and EU regulations, Irish law and um, all the different changes, the, the DSIs that the ministers bring in, everything else, and, and all the background knowledge that you need. And he started laughing at me. And he said, he said, we, we hired you as an apprentice, more or less. It takes three years to get into this. And he said, in your first six months, you took a paper to Brussels um, with Deirdre Clune, the MEP, and you put forward a whole different set of ideas for um, 
dealing with the lending obligation you said what you've done is unheard of so there must have been something there but um Absolutely. yeah i I just love it. Just love it. Well, well, that brings us nicely to my my first main question, I suppose, is this is a really difficult time for the fishing industry. Talk about throwing yourself in literally, very literally at the deep end. We have COVID at the moment. We've Brexit coming down the tracks very fast. We've EU talks ongoing. The world economy is in crisis. So um, just to touch on one of those things, I know you have been critical at the start of the pandemic about supports for the industry from the government. So how are fishermen dealing at the moment with the challenges of COVID? To be a fisherman, you have to be very res resilient. You have to be a person that doesn't get knocked down easily and won't get up. And that's the truth. But they go to sea in storms. Gales, they're out there now in, in, in Storm Hill, and I guarantee there's fishermen out there trying, trying to make a living, bring in food. So they'll keep going until they're actually knocked out. So as I said to the Minister, Derek Leary, we've had three, uh, like a boxing match. We've been knocked to the canvas already at the start of the year through uh, the bad weather. Like if boats can't go fishing, they can't earn a living. They still have expenses. There's huge insurance costs. Um, boats are so modern now, they have to be kept going. You can't turn an engine off and leave it go cold in condensation water. So you have to maintain the boats. They're, they're massive modern equipment now. The gear equipment inside in, in finding fish and, and, and locating fish and to avoid fish costs tens of thousands. And this has to be updated regularly. And you have sh ship to shore communications that you have to pay for, Wi-Fi, all these things now in the modern fleet cost a lot of money. And if you can't catch fish, you can't pay for them. So this is what we were saying to our ministers at the start. That it, this isn't about a handout to our fishing industry. This is just money that you will get back. This is a natural resource off the coastline that creates jobs, thousands of jobs that people don't even realise in our local coastal communities. And when they're gone, they won't be replaced. They guaranteed won't be replaced. And we'll have lost a massive part of our heritage as well too. So we're worth minding because we will pay back. We always pay back. These boats spend a fortune in their own communities. So but are you happy with the support you're getting financially? Just on, just on the COVID end of things now? Um, the money for the boats hasn't come, as far as I'm concerned, for the actual vessels and the boat owners. The horizontal measures that they introduced, which was giving a few bob to the crews and stuff like that, are invaluable. But that's... It, that's to every person in the community. We need that just to keep our economy ticking over. People have to buy food, otherwise they're going to just look for food in other ways. We won't go into that. So look, that's a necessary step that they had to take. But if you don't have the engines, if you don't have the equipment to work with, we're going back to the Stone Age. Like, you might as well go out and you know get a rod and line and say we're going to feed the nations with that. We need these boats to stay affable. These people don't own these boats. Like these are all, these are millions and millions worth of equipment, and they all, it it may be a second generation before they're paid for. You know, people think that fishing just go out, easy job, throw the net over the side. That's not the case anymore. This is a really skilled job. One quick way to emphasise that is years ago, a Spanish buyer told me that he can't understand the way that the Irish fishing fishing industry here are treated are looked at in comparison to what happens in Spain. In Spain, if a pilot of a plane walks down the street with his hat on and a skipper walks down with his hat on, they get the same respect in Spain because they know how difficult the job is. Here people think, as far as I view, is that fishermen just go out, there's no bother to go out, take out these vessels, 90, 100, 200 feet vessels, 
and catch fish in an ocean like it's no bother. It ain't that simple anymore. Like. And it's you getting, it's getting harder. Skill sets. But have the, have the banks been sympathetic, Patrick, to the... Um, oh, yes. No, no, in fairness, no, absolutely. I, I, okay. They have to be. Because, look, they have massive investment in these boats as well. It's not as if something like a house that you can put on the market and there's a good chance that somebody else will pick it up. Because the skill set is so unique to our industry, there isn't a, a queue down along the pier for fellas to go in and buy these boats. And if the skill set of the guys that are there already that have tuned these, like myself, from eight years of age, right through to the to, to when they finally get boats of their own, um, is gone, who's going to replace them? Like So the banks know themselves. It's, it's lost money. If they take a boat out, it's gone. So they, they have to dig in deep. And here's the thing. The fishing industry very rarely fails. The fishermen behind it keep going. They, they, they never stop. There's fellas there 70, 80 years of age still at it. Like, so... You know, it's 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 in the blood, as I said. So tell me, how is um, Castletown Bear? Now I could be wrong, but I thought at one point Castletown Bear had picked killy bags for the the most landings, and it seems to kind of fall down a bit again. Is there always a bit of competition there between the two ports, and how are things going there at the moment? There is, but look, um, that's a bitter pill for the locals, to be honest with you. Um, in the BIM report this year, it came a little closer to where I think it should be at. The Irish boats landed around 37 million, I think it was. The foreign boats had 90-something million. So you see, that's why it's the biggest port. Um, we have reservations about how much fish is being brought in, and there's, you know, it, it, it's allowed. You don't see any major protests going down there besides the, 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 the one in Dingle that was there for the COVID, valid reasons as far as I'm concerned. So we accept that. Um, these fishermen same as ourselves, go out to sea, earn their living. It's not up to them to say, well, we're going to give some of our fish back to our Irish counterparts. That's up to our negotiating team at the top level to decide, well, we need X amount to keep our fisheries viable in Ireland. What has happened in the past, the solution has been to cut the fleet. Um, to emphasise that, back to my own experience in Baltimore, there was around 28 boats that tied to the pier wall when I used to go out in our little half-decker when we fished around the rocks and around the shorelines and islands for pot fishing and creel fishing. And to get on one of the boats during the winter time, you'd have to put your name down on a list for maybe a month or two before you get an opening to get in there. There's only a handful of boats there now, like. So, you know, that was the way to keep this, the, the, the numbers there, which was to get rid of the majority. And... A minister had a report, Minister Preet had a report there for the six-mile exclusion zone. And in it, um, the Marine Institute um, scientists said that uh, in 2009, I think there was 280 vessels. The live register now is 180. Like, that's decimation. That's extinction levels in, in, in 10 years. And that's what we fear. If it gets worse again, that's the next solution. We just won't have a fleet, you know. Um, we see that in the UK, actually. This is why Brexit has the big flag, even though we're trying to keep the discussions linked to trade. If fishing is separated because we're such a small contributor at the moment, um, we're not seemed as valuable enough that the car manufacturing industries, um, pharmaceutical industries, we must look after them. There's more jobs and everything else. But for me, without food, our societies is in trouble, genuinely. And fishing is one of the best forms of, of food that you can get and um, I think and it's worth protecting. Just going back to the COVID, I know I remember the protests in Dingle, has that problem been largely sorted? That's whereby you were quite worried about uh, foreign crew members coming in and maybe not being tested or maybe bringing COVID with them. 
I mean, is that still happening, or are you happy that that, that there's not a well, look, yeah, from raising the issues back then, and it wasn't us, no, I was just brought in as um, a commentator, like as the expert in the field of representing the fishermen, and we had nothing whatsoever to do with any of the protests, even though we did have a lot to do with the negotiations and being the mediator between the two groups um, to make sure that it didn't get out of hand and it wasn't seen as something that it wasn't. Look, people had serious concerns. We see them that today and yesterday, the minister um, and the Taoiseach stressing six people now again. So... The community had a fear there. They were seeing it on the ground that what was in place wasn't being acted upon. And that's all they wanted. They just wanted the strict controls to be put in place and adhered to by these vessels. Now, these vessels were saying, well, there's nobody sick on board the boat. Like, you know, we want to come ashore or whatever else. And that's fair enough. Like these lads are on board the boat for maybe two or three weeks. Of course, when they get to dry land, they might want to step on it and go to the shops and pick out some stuff for themselves. But for me, it was very simple. You coordinate that. You get a, the, the sales agent to come down with his transport, pick up the lads, arrange it with the shop, bring them in, put them back on board the boat. All the health checks should have been put in place, check them. And if there was a problem, go to the mooring, get the health professionals down, check the crew. Like The point that was missed, I think, here was that imagine if we were reading in the papers that the Spanish boat, four or five of the crew members died at sea from COVID-19. Like, wouldn't that be a way worse story? You know, so that was the concerns that we had. Have we have things been implemented and changed? Yes, thankfully they have. Um, are they to the level that we would like them to see? Do they get lax? Just like we've seen in the media about the house parties and the, the bars. People get complacent. So you have to be on top of it all the time. But thanks be to God, touch wood, uh, things are going okay. So we're, we're happy enough, happy enough. Right. Now, um I would have thought now, given the pandemic, that there was a huge increase in home cooking and, you know, you PIM promoting fish and everyone's cooking at home. The supermarkets have never been busier. They've never made more money. So is this not a boom time for the fishing industry? I wish I could say so. Yes. Um, no, unfortunately. Look, we as a producer organisation have to get involved in the market and we try and bring our suggestions to the different parties and the different players within it. It didn't happen. Um, we even went so far as to give away free fish to highlight the industry's problems at one stage, which was very successful. And in fairness, the people um, in the local community were very grateful for that. And the boat was very generous. I must say that gave the fish and all the people that came down and filleted it. It was a huge success, but it highlighted it. But unfortunately, the price of fish has still collapsed. Um, yes, the price of fish has gone up um, in coincidence on the, on the supermarket shelves but we're not in charge of, 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 of that which we were hoping that a system would be put in place that everybody could come together and um, set a margin for themselves so that everybody in the process in the line of, of providing this uh, food source would get a, a fair share but look that was our suggestion that was our proposal uh, it didn't quite happen that way but we're still delighted the positive out of this is what you said. We have Irish people now starting to realise if you want fresh fish, you have to go to the fish counter, pick it up, put it in a bag, take it home and fry it needed that night. Don't put it into the freezer. Enjoy it the night that you get it. If you want fresh fish, you cook it that night. Make your plans to make sure you have it and you'll have fresh fish. The best you can have. Beautiful. 
Yeah. Right. And uh, we might get some of your recipes later. So, the easiest one, and I'll be, it'll be quick, is just flour. If you put flour on, and uh, it'll protect the fish and insulate the fish. If you want to go a bit better, into the pan. Into the yeah. pan. A bit of butter. At Nothing like it. Sit down a minute, it's off the pan and eat it. Don't wait. That's, that's that's Patrick's perfect fish recipe so for this week. Oh, we have to start a, a food podcast next with you. No um, now, in the last few weeks, I've been doing, and especially the last week, a lot of reporting on the roads in West Cork and the state of the roads and the roads network. And I think anyone who drives what they call the Bantry Line, which is the road from Cork, I suppose through Crookstown down into Bantry and onto Castletown Bear, we're very familiar with the lorries going up and down to the port. So how, I mean, is it time to lobby the government on behalf of the fishing industry for better roads or how have you found them? It's an important infrastructure point, absolutely. But for us, it's to stay in business. If we, if there's money to be allocated, we'd like it to be put into the industry itself, direct into the into the pockets of the lads that are trying to keep the boats going. I, I, I'm not being flippant in this. I can I can give you the figures. Um, priorities. So far, the, uh, the priority has to be, look, you can have the best roads in the country, but you have nothing to put on them. It, it, they are no good to our industry, you know. So we have to keep the industry going for primary, first and foremost. Of course, when the roads deteriorate, they have to be repaired for safety as well as anything else and getting access to markets that uh, that there's no holdups and stuff like that. You want to get the best price in the market when you finally get them there. But um, yeah, the, the, for us, the priority is the boats. Like we've only seen, would you believe it, into our industry, half a million euros of state aid for all the fleet. That, that's not the biggest boats. That's Over, every over boat. what time that's period, Patrick? So far this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like, you know, as I said, the horizontal measures help the individuals, but the actual fleet itself is in dire state. You, the reason why you're not hearing more about how dire it is, to be honest with you, Siobhan, is this is the time of the year that boats catch fish. So the fish are in abundance at this time of the year. You know, it's a good time to be fishing. The weather is fine and everything else. So it's like a sticking plaster at the moment, you know. They're getting through it. But we're real fearful for the wintertime. We're talking in the middle of a storm. There isn't, uh, all the fleet isn't out, I guarantee you that. So they're not earning, but they're still costing money to be at the shoreline. And the main the main thing is is, is, is to keep the fleet operating. Like we have to, and we have a small fleet. If you look at the, 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 the register of fishing vessels, 180 boats over 18 meters like in the richest fishing grounds in the world in the world now anybody can say uh, by square meter ireland has the richest fishing grounds in the world definitely of all species of fish and um to have that such a tiny fleet like it's 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 bewildering to be honest with you at best you know and speaking of that now another massive you know train coming down the track at you is brexit and i know you want to keep it about the trade element of it but obviously there's a massive uh, threat to our own um, fishing territory and then the closure of the UK waters. So how do you think that will impact on the 1st of January or whenever this is going to kick in as a major major issue? uh, I I try and keep scaremongering out of my interviews and stuff like that because if you keep scaremongering, you keep whinging people, ah, here you go, he's off again. But I'm going to be very clear in this. We lose half our fishing grounds. And the half that we retain could see an influx of up to 400 vessels that are currently fishing in the UK waters. So, as I said, we have 180 vessels and maybe 50 or 60 of them do the majority of their fishing inside the UK waters as it is. They'll have to come home 
So that's nearly a, a 50% increase as it is. And if you get another two or 300 boats in on top of that, you're talking about another three or 400% increase. Now we've asked for those figures to be analyzed to see what effect that will have on the stocks and the biomass around here. So it's not just what we lose, it's the future. So fishermen have taken massive sacrifices, trust me, throughout the years. And you can see it on a computer screen where they move from ground to ground to ground, not to catch fish, but to avoid fish because their quotas are so tight. So if you add this into the mix, it's an absolute disaster. So on top of all the other complications of going through a landlocked uh, through England to get to the markets, facing the French on the other side to see will they actually let the fish in, um, all the boats coming in on top of us, our own boats coming back in on top, destroying our biologically sensitive grounds. I think it's game over, and not just for us. So when we met Michel Barnier, we highlighted this to him, and this, this, this highlighted for me the importance of what we said to him from the Irish South and West. He sent his assistants around the table to pick up the printed out pamphlets that we had to explain it from all the people that are at the meeting so he could bring it to the next meeting. He knew getting it in an email wasn't fast enough. So that's how important that point that we made that he took and understood that day. Like it's the biologically sensitive area Ireland has. We have the nursery grounds of Europe. So and if we you, destroy them, thank you everyone. Are you confident that, you know, there'll be any headway made with this? I mean, you're, you're really predicting doomsday situation there and you haven't even be began to mention your fears about the policing of, of the territory and, and our, you know, very uh, reduced naval fleet as regards actual policing. Yeah, you see, the marine resource is under-resourced. And like these lads are going to see as well too, um, like our fishermen, they're also putting their health in danger. Like it's not an easy environment to work under. You know, they aren't appreciated and everybody thinks that the fishermen look at them with disdain and disgust. And that's not the point because we look at these guys when you're out there in these weathers, when there's trouble or when you need help, they're the first fellas you look to. They're like our ambulance service on the water. So we really appreciate our naval service. And to see them being decimated, the same as the industry, it's just ridiculous for our country. Like, So all these fears are coming into play. But here's the thing, Siobhan. This is what these interviews are about. We're in the coastal community of West Cork, right? And the local people, I think, have been a little taken aback by what's happening now because they've never realized the importance of the fishing industry. You know, it was a fisherman they knew and people like that, but they never understood the amount of contribution that this industry is actually having behind the scenes to their lives. So BIM did a report on the economic driver in Castleton Bear and the peninsula, Bear Peninsula. And would you believe that they attribute 84% of that economic driver to the fishing industry? It's the engine that drives the economy of the Bear Peninsula. So they didn't do it in Union Hall, no, to, as far as I know, and around Baltimore as well. We have a factory in Baltimore. like we have the, Geez, have the factory in Baltimore. A well-run factory that provides jobs all year round, you know, when they can get the fish, especially. So, like, take these out of our communities. We won't have them replaced. The point I like to make is this, like, again, back to when I started. My sister taught in the school in Sherkin Island. I had lads that worked with me in the aquaculture that turned out teachers inside in Sherkin Island. That school is closed now. There's a good population of people inside there, but there's no new young people coming up staying inside there because the jobs aren't being created for that. And the fishing industry was a very important part. So you, if we take that out of our communities, 
what we have left like. So for the West Cork community, the people that watch this, if you feel that there's a need here to pay a little more attention to your fishing industry, we'd really appreciate it. And if you have concerns, we would appreciate it to contact yourselves, the papers, ask questions, ask our politicians, um, you know, what's being done here? Like, is there a plan B? Why, why is the industry expressing these fears and we don't see anything coming out of it? Like, well, so Can I ask you then, Patrick, what, like, what is your solution to, say, the Brexit issue, for starters? I mean, how, how do we get well, around that? You, you know, the UK is going and their territories are gone with them. Yeah, you see, if, if the linkage to trade doesn't hold up, and they have an ordeal Brexit. We are in real, real serious territory. So the first thing you have to do is protect the goose that lays the golden egg, which is the biologically sensitive area that I'm talking about. So we have to get an inventory of who's allowed into the water. If we exceed that amount, what damage will be done? So the only ones that can provide that information is our scientific community, like the Marine Institute. Now, if you say, well, Patrick, have you raised this before? I raised this in front of two T-shirts. Right? There's a third one there that we have yet to meet, and I will be doing the same in front of Michal Martin. But both those Taoiseach said, yes, th this is required. This is a no-brainer. Like, so, so, you know, I'm hoping the work is done. I can understand why it might be published, because we are in a combined um, front, we'd call it, against the UK. And it is against the UK when it comes to fishing. So all the other nations have come together and said, look, you can't do this. If you do this, you're going to wreck the common fishery policy, you're going to wreck our coastal communities. And what are you going to get out of it? Because you're going to be bringing the fish to our market, you know? So, they, and to link it to, to trade, sorry. So that's the importance of it. But for me, for me as a fisherman, if you kill the fish, if you wipe out the biologically sensitive clones that we've brought back to 90% MSY, we see all the negative about um, people saying, oh, we're overfishing this stock and that stock. There are reasons for that. There are regulations. So, but the first and foremost, we have to protect the fishing grounds. We have to protect the spawning grounds. We have to protect the juveniles. And fishermen are making huge sacrifices, changing their gear, upping their things. They're losing money at times to try and get the right balance to be able to catch the fish that they're allowed to catch at the size that is most opportunistic in the marketplace and protect the stocks. And there's been an awful lot of work in that. And this is against the back of climate change. We have massive predators coming into our waters that people, you know, the bluefin tuna, they're, they're savage eating machines. Like, it's great to see the whales and the dolphins and everything else, but they're not coming here on holidays. They're coming here for food. And the food that they're eating is the fish that we're also trying to catch as fishermen to stay afloat. But that gives an indication of the health of the fishing grounds. They're coming here for food because the food is here. So you can't have it in one hand saying, oh, we're overfishing the stocks, there's no fish there. And then the evidence on the other side is saying completely the opposite, you know. So the fishermen are doing a good job and under extreme difficult circumstances. I mean. And you so, spoke there just to, on climate change and the, you know, we're just after storm Ellen. Like, is the industry worried about what's coming down the tracks as regards um, more violent storms, wetter weather? Everything that's been predicted seems to be kind of coming through faster than was even predicted. And I mean, is, is that, um, is that a, a worry to the, to the industry? Or is that just, as you say, priorities? It's a bit far down the pecking order at the moment. No, we, 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 there's a WK Irish group 
and it's going on WKR6 now, I think it is. And it's a, a working group on the ecosystem that we're a part of, meeting scientists, and there's new papers being developed. How all parts of the marine life interact with each other and the effects that it has and human interaction and how that can change. So one of the points is it, that was raised in a couple of the meetings that I was at. One was codfish, for instance, prefer colder waters to spawn in. That's their preference. So what they're moving is they're moving north. But you see, that then impacts on the scientific evaluation of the stock and the biomass of the stock if the fish are moving away. Yet they're saying, well, we're attributing that to the F. The F is the fishing effort, right? So we bring down the fishing effort and the stock will recover. But that's not the case if climate change has changed the goalposts. So this is where the complication comes in then, and I don't want to be too complicated. Under the landing obligation, you have only a certain amount of fish to catch, but all the fish swim together. So the lowest common denominator could choke the other species of fish. So if you catch the lowest number of fish, and then you're told, well, that's it, can't fish no more, and you can't catch all the other fish that are in abundance outside there. So there's a massive balancing act. That's why fishermen are changing their gear constantly, moving ground, moving areas to try and stay legal, and it's all the more difficult. And if you're playing with a smaller amount of quota, you've no leeway. You've, you've no grey area to adapt to change. Do you know what I mean? There's no wriggle room. So but it's I'm really also, hard. I'm also concerned about the actual welfare of the fishermen. I mean, there must be an awful lot more in physical danger, never mind the stocks moving and having to go further to catch, catch them. I mean, the storms yeah. are creating surely a, a bit of a fear amongst the community, are they not? And, and, and I'm smiling now because would you believe that fishermen were given an extra task and an extra challenge by our minister, which was to clean up our oceans, to oh, take up all the plastics that's coming from the rivers and everything else. So their, their, work, their work is being added to, look, we could spend the next, as you said, I have to be careful of how far I can drift away from the current topics. Um, the ILO convention is something that was brought in, an international convention to look after the health and well-being of the fishermen. I have my major problems with that because if it's interpreted incorrectly, it doesn't help the fishermen, it actually crucifies them. And we've been working with the Department of Marine. We're hoping to meet the new minister and talk to him. Um, we, we didn't get to meet Mr. Shane Ross, um, but we need to bring in primary legislation in this country. As I said, my, my job is multifaceted. Um, people don't realise, even the fishermen don't realise the amount of work that goes into behind the scenes. There's an awful lot of mechanics to be done to keep the engine running on the shore side of things as well too. So I'm not going to drift away from that. Um, but any time you want to come back in any of these particular subjects, um, Siobhan. Just give us, just give us a minute or two on the, the, I think, the Fishing for a Litter initiative, is it? Because I think uh, it was something I discovered there a year or two ago and I was very impressed with the, uh, because the fishermen, in fairness, get a lot of slagging for, you know, putting plastic in the ocean or leaving netting behind. And actually, there's a very good and very uh, successful initiative whereby while they're out fishing, they're also, if I'm right, uh, helping clean the oceans. So um, just to elaborate for one minute on that, um, we raised this issue in the Irish South and West. We had serious concerns about this. And a girl in BIM, Catherine Barrett, who has spearheaded this massive girl, brilliant girl. And um, we had different views and opinions four or five years ago about this because I felt, look, you're going to, this is an onerous task. This is going to make boat operators illegal because under the work time directive, giving them extra work to do doesn't allow them to do the fishing work. And if you breach their rest hours, <laughs> they're jailed and the boats are fined and everything else. So I said there has to be balance in this. And in fairness, we, we're starting to reach that. So much so that I took up the role as the vice chair in the Marine Plastics uh, Working Group 
in one of the um, advisory councils that I'm a participant on. And um, I'm passionate about this as well, too. And we're working on systems to create a traceable way of bringing back plastics from the initial uh, manufacturer all the way through its life cycle. But here's what people don't understand. A fishing net lasts 20 years minimum, right, if it's looked after. Now, there are components that wear out and that, that have to be changed. But the actual weight of plastic in a fishing net, in most fishing nets, it's only a couple of hundred kilos, you see. But the problem was is that fishermen were being um, pointed at <laughs> for being one of the worst polluters. But you see, a net breaks up. And the way they were calculating wasn't by kilo. It was by individual items on the strand. So a small little hair of um, rope, I'm just trying to get it on the screen, <laughs> this size, was, was one unit. Do you understand? It's about six inches. Do, 10 grams. 10 grams in weight, you know. And um, so we're working on that. But the boats themselves deserve fierce credit. They're doing this for free. And as I said, it does work on their impact. You can imagine some fellow that's at sea now for seven or eight days. He's wrecked. He's coming ashore. And next to the fellow says, well, you're going to take a half an hour now to upload the plastic and the rubbish and the, the stuff that you brought in. He's just looking at He's going, oh, God, okay, fine, let's do it. And he does it for free. He does it for nothing. He's doing the right thing. And here's yes, the thing. But I here's suppose it's in, his own int- it's in his own interest, too, that the oceans are kept clean. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a misconception, you see, that people say that plastics will get into the environment and they'll get into the food chain where we're eating. That is not the case. We've been at scientists, scientific papers and everything else. In actual fact, one lad said to me, he said, if you rub this, your sleeve, if you rub the sleeve of your clothes and go up to a window, and not on the camera, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you rub the sleeve, there's plastic fibers on your clothes. They go up into the air and you're inhaling them into your lungs. So they're already in your system. You drink a water bottle, there's plastic fibers inside in that. You're drinking it every time with a water bottle. So, like, we put plastic into our bodies. Would you believe that? My father got his knees replaced. They were plastic. You know? So, like, you... I think that's slightly different from drinking from a bottle. But But you know what I mean? So, plastics are there. Like, uh, uh, and here's the thing. I don't want to be negative about plastics either. Okay? So, this guy said to me, he said, "Uh, well a cucumber, if you put plastic sleeve on a cucumber, it lasts 10 days longer than it normally does. So if you get rid of the plastics, you're going to decimate your food production and, and that. So there's other implications in this. But no, back to the fishermen, right? Fishermen are tasked with picking up the 100% of rubbish in the seas. But it is acknowledged that they are 5% of the uh, contributors to the pollution. So they're taking in an extra 95%. And I think we're nearly at 100% of the fishing boats in Ireland that are all signed up to bringing in rubbish from the sea. And it's not their rubbish, by the way. It's not just Irish boats that are fishing in Irish waters, but it's the Irish boats that are bringing in the rubbish. So we're, we're, we're working on it, and it's really important. Look, but there's, there's an element of um, inferiority then that they can exert over their colleagues, maybe, and a bit of smugness that they can show that <laughs> they're coming in with their plastic under their arms. But Patrick, I'll can I just... let you say that now. <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? Um, this uh, podcast is, is, after all, about the coronavirus. And I feel I should ask you, though I know no more than some of the other interviewees, you don't have much time in your hands. But when you do, are you out fishing? Are you watching Netflix documentaries about fishing? Are you reading books about fishing? Or can you get away from it at all? I regularly get phone calls at around 10 or 11 o'clock at night telling me to go home. <laughs> so that, I think Where that are puts you? it in a nutshell. <laughs> in the office of Gaston there. You're um, not on a boat I, angling, no. 
No, I, I had my young fella in agriculture here. My young fella's after taking over. We did a documentary with a girl, uh, Darina Clancy, um, brilliant, brilliant uh, documentary maker, excellent media person, and um, it's called Gaffer Sanunta. And that I'm I'm shown in that, but um, it was meant to be about the industry and the shore and everything around. It changed as the interviews carried out, and it showed the real, true story of the industry with the O'Driscoll family, who moved from Shirkin and went to Cascon Bear, and how they've left the industry now, even though they had succeeded. They got to the pinnacle of it. They had a beautiful boat, um, able to catch pelagic and whitefish, could travel anywhere in the world, and they decided, look, we've just got to get out of this. They had the boat, you know, well, I I shouldn't be saying too much information. (laughs) They mightn't thank me for it. But there was no need for them to leave the industry. Young, healthy, very skilled people to leave it. So there was other reasons that made them leave that. So um, when you see that, then I have to put the same effort in to try and keep people there. So as a fisherman myself, I really love the industry. To me, there's nothing better. So I will spend seven days a week at this job. Um, The only time you won't get me is when I'm asleep or when I'm talking to somebody else. So my phone number is out there for anybody to ring me. And the only thing that I would ask is that if somebody does contact me or make a comment, please don't do it anonymously. If I'm willing to put myself out there, I want the person who's contacting me. And any discussion you want to talk about or any information that you want, I'm there. And I put that out to anybody in the public. Look, as I said, this is so important for West Cork, our fishing industry. From the smallest boat, the lads that are going out actually using oars with an outboard to um, the biggest boats that we have in the fleet for pelagic vessels. You know, it's really important that West Cork start to think about what will happen to us if we lose our fishing industry because I think it'll be decimation for a lot of the coastal towns and villages and places you know that really Are you optimistic or pessimistic for the next five years? I have to be optimistic Um, and the reason why I'm optimistic is that it's a renewable resource we can take a certain amount of fish out of the fish stocks every year and magically they reproduce themselves next year and they're there again and people say, well, why should we be doing this? It's a food source. If the fish aren't eaten by us, the fish will be eaten by fish. You know, it's as simple as this. It's mother nature. So for us to be fine and healthy and fight the likes of the coronavirus, there's nothing better than a healthy fish and nutritious, no additives, no preservatives, lads. Fantastic tasting food, like, you know, it, it's there for you. It's on your doorstep. You know, these, there, there's fantastic lads that are actually bringing it to your doorstep themselves. You can meet them in local villages now, and you know the boat you're getting it off. If I want to be picking on individuals now, like with Young Healy, it would be strength to mind on social media. That's a fantastic job. And imagine, he goes out to sea. He does everything to keep his boat operating. He gets out to sea, and he has the time and the drive to come ashore to make sure you get it into your hands. Like, where else could you see that passion in any industry? Like, it's just... It blows me away all the time, Shima. Blows me away. So I have to, I have to respond to that. I have to put my myself forward to do the same. And delighted to do it. Delighted. And being paid for it, like <laughs> it's a huge bonus. I do it for free. You can make your you hobby. Know? If you can make your hobby your job, you're a happy person. That's it. Yeah. So you know, like it, it's frustrating at times. Absolutely. When you when you know this is the way to go, and you're hoping that people will come with you, and and no, it doesn't happen. But you just dust yourself down, get back up again and go again, you know. It's like it's, it's too important to, to not keep fighting. So I am optimistic. optimistic okay, yeah. on that optimistic note. 
Thanks very much, Patrick, for joining us. That's great. And so to this week's newspaper. First off, we have almost three pages on the recent flooding in West Cork and the visit of Junior Minister Patrick O'Donovan to survey the damage. There are lots of photographs of various towns, villages and beaches which were badly hit and interviews with local residents annoyed at this continuing problem in the region. We also have a story about plans for protest in Dublin this weekend of anti-mask protesters who have offered to send a bus from West Cork to the event and it has received some support online. There is also a story on page three about the presence in West Cork of a religious group which has a Holocaust denier as one of its founders. They are also not best pleased with mask wearing and have posted mocking videos online to that effect, we're told. Bantry's mystery lotto millionaire is also mentioned and a report on the first female diver in the Navy who finished her training on Bear Island recently. Danny Collins is in the Boston bar making pizzas to allow him to open his popular drinking spot. And on page five, we mark the visit of the Taoiseach to his second home in Court McSherry last weekend. Also, the Gagan homeworkers are thrilled with the star after our recent coverage of their plight resulted in them securing a deal for high-speed broadband. There's coverage of the funerals of the West Lodge founder, PJ Murphy, <coughs> excuse me, and also former TD Paddy Sheehan. And Emma Connolly takes the story of the incredible adventures of West Cork sailing lads who have just returned from their world trip and puts in this week's paper. Also, a New Yorker tells us why he is missing West Cork so much this summer. And there's a stunning coastal home for sale in Skull for 1.35 million in our property section. We also have our usual local notes pages packed with local news and a super sports section as always. We also have a back to school special feature this week and Emma Connolly's very popular COVID diary continues plus lots more, all in this week's Southern Star. So don't forget, if you can't get to the shops, you can subscribe by going to southernstar.ie and clicking on the e-paper tab at the top, or call the office on 021-21200 for a postal copy to be sent out to you. And now for this week's musical treat. The Southern Star Sessions is a popular segment which has been recorded at various intervals in recent years at the Southern Star Studios. It has featured both visiting and local musicians and each week we are asking our podcast hosts to pick their favourite session as we all enjoy a bit of nostalgia. This week I'm going to pick a great recording from local singer-songwriter Brian Casey. It was recorded about three years ago but it still sounds as fresh and relevant as ever. It's called Oh Now. And for more on Brian's work, see Brian Casey Music on Facebook.
come out the day's got a beautiful view Your head's clear now and it's feeling beautiful too You feel real proud of the things that you managed to do listen to the southern star coronavirus podcast don't forget to like share and subscribe to our podcast which is available on itunes spotify youtube acast stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening to another southern star media podcast production stay connected to west cork by subscribing to our e-paper and support local quality and trusted journalism visit www.subscribe.southernstar.ie